Thank you for tuning in and welcome to another epic edition of the Jerry Jones Show. Hosted by Jerry Jones, along with his sidekick, Kevin Anderson. Each and every episode is guaranteed to increase your profits and decrease your stress in dentistry. Welcome to the show. Hello, everyone. This is Jerry Jones with Jerry Jones Direct. And this month, I have the distinct privilege of welcoming a special guest, um, Dr. Kevin Coughlin, MBA, MAGD. Um, and uh, Dr. Coughlin uh, is uh, joining us uh, this afternoon uh, from uh, Massachusetts and uh, has a, maintains a practice there in Massachusetts, a number of practices, actually, um, branded under Bay State Dental. And uh, today we're going to be talking about Dr. Coughlin's uh, organization and, and diving into some advanced uh, business strategies uh, and more in dentistry and looking at the multi-location model. So um, a little bit about our guest, uh, Dr. Coughlin. He grew up in, in Feeding Hills, Mass., uh, went to school at Tufts uh, University School of Medicine and bachelor's degree from Springfield College. And his MBA is from Western New England College. Um, he's uh, spent time at uh, one of the oldest VA hospitals in the, in the country um, and began practice in 1983 um, and became the first uh, Bay State Dental Office in Springfield. Uh, he's currently on staff at Bay State Medical Center, Mercy Hospital, and Mary Lane uh, Hospital. And he's also one of the only dentists in the country with both a fellowship and mastership in the AGD. And he's also a fellow in the American Academy of Implantology and an instructor, certified instructor with the International Association of Orthodontics. Um, so the, uh, our guest today uh, is very, well, not very, extremely well qualified um, to, uh, to conduct this, uh, this interview with me, this seminar with me, and we've got just a, a laundry list of uh, material to cover. So Dr. Coughlin, I'm assuming you can hear me okay. Yes, I can, Jerry. Well, I appreciate you joining me. I know it's, it's uh, three hours later for you. It's um, early evening out there. Um, and mass, and uh, we're just not quite at the end of the day out here in, in Oregon. And um, I'm, I'm appreciate, appreciative of your time. I know you're a busy guy. Um, and I didn't cover everything uh, in the intro for you. I left out author. <laughs> you have three books. Um, you're doing podcasts. Um, I mean, you're a busy guy. You have uh, 11 or 12 offices now. How many offices? Uh, 14 offices in western Massachusetts, about 80 miles west of Boston, Massachusetts. Okay, so I'm way behind. 14 offices. Okay, so you are, I mean, you're, you're still practicing today. You're still wet-fingered, is that correct? That's correct. I work every day, Monday through Friday, from about 7.30 uh, a.m. until about 1.30 p.m. Mm -hmm. And then for the rest of the day, I deal with the trials and tribulations like all wet-fingered dentists, whether they be staff, supplies, ordering, inventory, reviewing process and procedures, uh, patient complaints, no different than anyone else listening uh, to this uh, interview. Now, Maybe actually even more. We had, I believe, 111,000 patient visits in 2015. So as I like to say to my staff, if you're having a 5% problem, that means 95% of all your processes and procedures are running smoothly and excellent. 5% on 100,000 patient visits is 5,000 complaints and problems. So you've got to constantly push those areas to be as uh, efficient and as effective as possible. 
with 100,000 plus patients, there really isn't a room for 5%. Um, Correct. Um, and I'm sure in your organization, I mean, based on what I've read and what I've heard, because I've heard you speak, um, based on those factors, I bet you're not running anywhere near five. Do you mind sharing, like, what's your, what's your um, let's call them issues or challenges, patient challenges, what that number might be? Uh, we're probably running about 40 to 50 uh, moderate to severe complaints a month. Okay. Uh, and my goal is to get it to zero, but realistically, uh, so long as you have patients, employees, or team members, I don't think that's practical. All you can do is come up with processes and procedures to reduce and eliminate those problems, learn from them, and uh, try to uh, avoid them from reoccurring. And those problems are the same as, as all of us. Sometimes it's patient dissatisfaction. Uh, we were unable to deliver the level of care and service that a Mr. or Mrs. Smith expected or wants. Uh, sometimes it's uh, billing issues, uh, mistakes with the processing of insurance claims. Uh, sometimes it's just scheduling issues with multiple locations in multiple areas. Uh, sometimes Mr. or Mrs. Smith will arrive at the wrong practice uh, because our practices are relatively close. Uh, they're all within uh, six to eight miles of each other uh, in small towns in western Massachusetts. Mm -hmm. Yeah, those are, those are some, um, yeah, I mean, many of the same problems, some unique problems, um, but all none of which insurmountable. Um, and, I mean, that's, that's fascinating to me. I mean, 100,000 patient visits, um, four to 500 complaints, you know, maybe 600 complaints a year. I mean, that's really nothing. If you look, if you look at, I mean, you should be really proud of where you're at, and I understand why you're, why you want to get where you're going. But, um, you know, I guess for me, I'd personally rather deal. If you're going to deal with problems, I mean, you might as well be learning from them and creating systems to prevent them in the future if you can. So, um, I mean, I, I, that's that's remarkable problems, um, but all none of which insurmountable. Um, and I mean, that's, that's fascinating to me. I mean, 100,000 patient visits, um, four to 500 complaints, you know, maybe 600 complaints a year. I mean, that's really nothing. If you look, if you look at, I mean, you should be really proud of where you're at, and I understand why, you're, why you want to get where you're going. But, um, you know, I guess for me, I'd personally rather deal, if you're going to deal with problems, I mean, you might as well be learning from them and create. Um, you mentioned organizational structure, um, and, I, and I imagine you have, uh, out of those 155 folks, um, some, some extremely talented people who have been with you for, for many years. I mean, that's not atypical in a, in a great organization. I uh, imagine it's the same in yours. Um, what does that organizational structure look like with 155 employees in 14 locations? Um, there's obviously, you know, you're the, you're the CEO, um, chief bottle washer, and and practicing dentist too. What what does it look like? Um, you know, who reports to you? What are their obligations? Maybe just a couple of uh, examples of you know um, who reports to you and what their functions are. Well, first I would say that although I get the majority of the credit, it's the people that I've surrounded myself uh, with that really deserve the credit. Uh, I'd like to think that I gave them a roadmap. Uh, I helped role play. I help design systems, but ultimately it's the people, the team members that ultimately provide success. 
I don't believe one man or one woman can do all of these things. Uh, so the support from this group is critical. Typically, uh, since the cloud-based systems came in, and I currently use a software system called Denticon, uh -huh. uh, but prior to the cloud-based system, I started with T1 lines, then we morphed into T2 lines, then we morphed into T3 lines, and that cost was in excess of $25,000 a month to Ooh. support the digital radiography, uh, the digital photos, the digital models, uh, the ICAT scans from one location to another so that we were as close to paperless as possible. With the advent of the cloud, it has certainly made our organization much, much more financially, fiscally sound, and uh, I believe uh, significantly better. So the structure in the system is each of the 14 offices have a point person. Those point people report to five what I'll refer to as regional managers, and those regional managers report to what I would call the chief operating uh, officer. Uh, I will tell you that we close all 14 offices once a month from 1 o'clock until 5 p.m. on a Friday, and roughly two, two and a half hours are devoted to clinical aspects of care, and the remainder of that time is the business aspect of that care. After 34 years of clinical dentistry and attending almost every continuing education course you could imagine, you learn the clinical aspects, but unfortunately, in many cases, the business acumen to implement these new clinical procedures are often missing. Uh, so I'm a big believer in once you know how to do something, whether it be IV sedation, orthodontic band and brackets, uh, oral sedation, inhalation sedation, uh, implant surgery, sinus list, the list can go on and on. You have to have a system uh, of business processes and procedures to implement those areas of care. And that has to be explained to the staff. There's nothing worse in the world than having an, uh, a potential patient or IE customer call the office and require about Botox or Dermofill, and that front desk individual says, I can't help you. So the ability to communicate through either email processes, uh, role-playing meetings, uh, uh, virtual training uh, is critical as your organization gets bigger. Uh, and I think most people who have experienced most multiple offices like yourself would concur training is never-ending. Uh, no sooner do you think the whole team's on board, someone is either terminated, they leave on their own volition, there's an illness, a pregnancy, and you have new members, and the training never ends. So that structure is a point person uh, in each of the 14 offices. They report to one of the five regional managers. Those regional managers discuss the, uh, um, the, the financial data in glue. Basically what I'm looking for day in and day out is how many new patients do we get each month in our particular organization, it's about 938 new patients a month. Where are they coming from? Why are they coming to us? And equally important, how many patients are we losing each month? And typically, we're losing between 35 and 45 patients a month. In western Massachusetts, about 80 miles west of Boston, the majority of those patients who are lost, I'm happy to say, are relocating out of the area. The economy is not tremendous in western Massachusetts, and people are relocating because of jobs. But about 
uh, 10 to 20 percent, it's a uh, change in insurance, a dissatisfied, dissatisfied with care or service or both, and those are the areas that uh, I'm, I'm interested in. I also you know, want to know how many treatment plans have been accepted and how many treatment plans have been rejected. I'm sorry to interrupt you. Go ahead, Jerry. No, that's okay. So you also measure treatment plans accepted. So you're measuring your, your acceptance ratio. Um, Correct. Yeah, which is key. You've, you've said two things that in, in 20, over 20 years, I've been, and I'm not trying to position myself as some, you know, uh, really smart business guy uh, that I'm not, but I think I'm the only one that I've ever heard even mention measuring retention. Because to me, if you don't know how many you're losing, how in the world do you know how many you should be adding? Um, how, how, I mean, most doctors have no clue. They don't, they don't talk to a patient. They don't ask them if they, why, they're left, why they've left. They don't measure it. In fact, I think there's been maybe less than five dentists in my entire career who could tell me how many patients they're losing each month and why. And well, that's, I, I would stress anyone listening to this uh, uh, communication, uh, it's not a difficult process and procedure. Uh, as large as we are, and there's certainly many larger organizations, no chart leaves, no, uh, no radiograph leaves our office without me signing off. So typically when a patient is leaving your organization, they generally will request request uh, their clinical notes, uh, mm-hmm. diagnostic photos, radiographs, models, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Before that leaves our office, that has to be checked off by the owner. Mm-hmm. And what I want to know from uh, the communication at our front desk is why are they leaving? Right. And if they don't know why that Mr. or Mrs. Smith are leaving, then it's clear that my training is not up to stuff and we've got to review it. Right. You just simply want to say, Mr. and Mrs. Smith, we're sorry to see you leave. Was there anything we can do to improve so it doesn't occur in the future? And, and like I said, in many cases in our particular geographic area, it's a relocation because the economy isn't great. But in some cases, it's, they're just dissatisfied with care or service. And that's mm-hmm. an unacceptable uh, statistic. You have to address it with those individuals involved. And I think once they see it and understand it, uh, you try to come up with processes and procedures to avoid it. Yeah, for sure. Um, and I love, I love how simple that system is. Any, anybody listening to this can immediately implement that. And I think it's a tremendous um, mistake and disservice to patients if you don't implement it, if you're not paying attention to who's leaving and why. Because uh, let's face it, there's a learning opportunity every time. If it's not relocation, if it's not death, there's something to be learned and that should be learned from that experience, from that patient leaving. And it shows your organization, you as the CEO, the leader, the owner, however the title that that interests you that you want to use, it shows you're engaged. It shows you care. It shows that uh, no matter how big you are, no matter how much money you may be making, uh, you want to try to do better. And I think it subliminally shows a message to your team members that you take it serious. And uh, I think you should. Uh, uh, I mean, no one has ever gone to a restaurant and been dissatisfied. And you tell a lot of people about that dissatisfaction. 
it's bad PR, uh, and a simple uh, uh, approach that I use is after every single procedure, even no charge visit, I ask the following questions, and those questions are written down, and they're either put on a tablet or for some of the folks that aren't comfortable with uh, electronic gadgets, we have it in paper form. Were we on time for your appointment? Yes or no? Did you feel we solved your problem? Yes or no? Did we explain the fees associated with the procedure? Yes or no? Would you refer a friend or family member to the practice? Yes or no? If there's a no response to any of those questions, then right at the point of service, I request that it be addressed. And if we're late and we kept Mr. and Mrs. Smith behind schedule, it's a no-charge visit. And let me tell you, that hurts. So we allow 10 minutes uh, to be an acceptable, but beyond 10 minutes, your time is just as valuable as ours, and uh, you've got to run a tight ship. Uh, People are busy. Uh, and and I don't like to be kept waiting, and I'm assuming uh, most of the population doesn't. Uh, And in many times for the listeners, the patient goes, I understand, Dr. Coughlin, please, I I understand, okay? Uh, So they're not looking for uh, that free visit. Uh, So typically what we do when I say a free visit is the examination fee in our organizations range from uh, $45 to $95, and that fee is written off. Mm-hmm. as a office adjustment or courtesy uh, because uh, for whatever the reason, it doesn't really matter. Uh, we were behind and we kept Mr. and Mrs. Smith waiting. Right, right. Um, let's shift gears for a moment. I, I want to sort of talk about uh, the, the topic that's really on a lot of dentists' mind, minds these days, um, s- certainly in the in the interaction that I have with them. Um, they talk about chain dentistry. Um mm-hmm. You know, with 14 locations, uh, I would consider you a you know a chain a model, um, and I think that I mean that's fantastic. Um, what are you what What are some of the faults that you have found in your own model, and what are some of the faults that you see with other um, you know with with other chains or you know call them big box, call them whatever you want. Um, it really doesn't matter. They they all have a, a place I think in the industry. But what do you what are some of the faults that you've found with your model? And, and, and what are some of the faults that you see with some of the other, um, other you know, uh, multi-location, larger, uh, larger companies out there? Well, I, I've done a couple of lectures, uh, more than actually a couple. I've spoken for Pride Institute. I've spoken at Tufts University School of Dental Medicine. I spoke to uh, Excellence in Dentistry and the Profitable Dentist on DSOs, friend mm-hmm. or foe. And when I refer to DSOs, I'm really talking about dental service organizations. Mm -hmm. So you can break down the dental foundation as it stands now to solo practitioners, group practitioners. Once you talk about groups, practitioners, you want to define those groups is are they dentist-owned and operated? Or did the dentist hire an outside company, which I'll refer to as a managed service organization? And that would be a third category. And then when you look at these dentist-owned groups, 
that are managed by a managed service organization, who controls that managed service organization? And typically, they'll either be controlled by an outside party that is either equity-backed or venture capital-backed. And to me, the distinction for the public and for us as practitioners is do you understand the difference in the strategies behind these different groups? To cut to the chase, when you have 14 practices or six practices or three practices, chances are your exit strategy, since none of us can take these businesses with us, they will either be passed on to family members or they will be sold Generally, once you get beyond three or four practices, the exit strategy would be to sell or migrate into a managed service organization. And then the next level or tier beyond that is once you get to a certain size. In most cases, those are going to be backed or purchased by equity partners or uh, venture capitalist firms. And to me, the distinction is critical. Once you get outside backers, generally their time frame, based on my research and uh, background, is three to seven years. They establish an EBITDA, which is earnings before interest, taxes, depreciation, and amortization. They determine what that number is, and generally they want to quadruple that number in three to seven years. And once that equity partnership or venture partnership has, has established that, they're going to sell to a larger equity firm or venture capital firm, what I call small, medium, large, and supersized. Just like we have small dental practices, medium-sized dental practices, large and, and huge, you have this in the venture capital world. Generally, they focus on $500 million to a couple of billion dollars, and then from there they go to a couple of billion to maybe $50 billion, and then from $50 billion to $250 billion, and then $250 billion and up. And it's almost like a Ponzi scheme. Each group is selling to the next level, and they're giving their investors a return on uh, investment. And uh, it's critical that in my own personal belief, the exit strategy for all of us at some point or or another, if we continue to be successful and grow, the logical progression, unfortunately or fortunately, depending on what side of the fence you sit, is ultimately leading to some kind of partnership with an equity-backed group or a venture capital group. And you got to understand that their time frame is much different. I always look at building a business 5 to 10 years, 10 to 30 years, 30 to 100 years. But in these types of organizations, they're churning over uh, much quicker, three to seven years. And uh, as far as the biggest complaint, I think we as practitioners or outside investors, uh, as you said, Jerry, you, you, you have three to six dental practices in various uh, areas of uh, development. What do you do with it? And uh, so long as the right people are in control, and I believe you put patient care as the paramount focus point, I think you're on the right track. But when you have hundreds of millions of dollars 
on the line and you're trying to churn these profits quickly and your long-term strategy is only three to seven years, you might have a great partner, but that partner could be different in three to seven years. And many of us as dentists, at least the ones that I know, are sometimes short-sighted and we're thinking, how much money can we put in our pocket now? What's good for me now? But you may want to look at what's good for your business in the long run. And uh, it's an individual choice. Some will say that this is an excellent strategy, but ultimately, once you get to a large number of practices, who the hell is going to buy it other than someone with very deep pockets? And usually that's not going to be another dentist. You may get another dental group to buy it, but eventually their strategy is going to be ultimately to sell to a managed service organization that's backed financially or owned by a, an equity partner or a uh, venture capital group. Um, do you sort of, um, in your own mind, for your 14 locations, do you do you see yourself as, um, uh, I mean, obviously dentist owned. Um, do you do you consider your organization sort of a, a dental service organization, or do you still do you really just look at it and go, you know what, I'm one dentist. I have a, a number of employees who are associate uh, type dentist uh, arrangement, and I've just got a I've just got 14 locations. I mean, how, in your own well, mind, how do you view your your organization? In in full disclosure, uh, back in 2012, uh, I had reached a point where I didn't know what to do. My three children had no interest in the field of dentistry or the business of dentistry. And I came up with a strategy where I hired a company outside of Boston called Provident Health. And uh, for the listeners, basically what they are is a brokerage firm. They came in and did an analysis of my business, and they looked at it from top to bottom. And after about 11 months of data and research, and when I tell you data and research, they went from top to bottom through our practice. They came up with an EBITDA number, and that EBITDA number was roughly $3 million. And what they said is they said, we believe your business is worth between 15 and $25 million. And they went out and they did research for us, and what they found is 21 companies in the United States had an interest in looking at our business. And then out of those 21, we did sort of an interview. Some were in person, some were on conference calls. And my overall evaluation is some of these larger groups just wanted to write you out a check, take over total ownership, and you would be 100% an employee. Mm-hmm. Other groups wanted you to run the business, continue to do what you were trained to do and what you liked doing and were comfortable doing and didn't want to change the business model at all. They just wanted uh, a return on their investment. So there were two different strategies. An example would be uh, Aspen Dental and Mm -hmm. Heartland Dental. They're more of a franchise model. Uh, You you know what you're going to get when you're either purchased or you join those groups. You, You don't they don't conform to your wants and needs. You conform to theirs. They mm-hmm. have what they feel are the best processes and procedures. So I eliminated all of those groups that did not want me to maintain ownership. Mm-hmm. 
And then from there, we negotiated with four groups. They made a silent bid. And uh, generally, what we were told is we could get about four times to five times EBITDA based on our business structure. And I personally felt that we were worth more than that. And ultimately, uh, we sold uh, approximately 80% of our business in 2013. uh, And we retained 20%. And we got a 6.8 times EBITDA return. And from that, we uh, joined what I'll refer to as a dental service organization. And in January of 2016, the 65 dental practices that we were associated with merged with DCA, which stands for Dental Care Alliance, uh, bringing us up to 240 dental practices on the East Coast from Florida to Massachusetts. And uh, my prediction is, is this will be churned again in the next three to four years. Uh, and uh, You know, nobody knows the future, but based on my experience, uh, to those listening, that model may be appropriate for you. It may not be. My personal advice for those building a group, whether it's you and your franchise, you want to make sure that you understand what your EBITDA number is. You want to make sure you can justify that EBITDA because, generally speaking, you might calculate EBITDA and come up with $100. I may calculate EBITDA and come up with $50. And you want to make sure you're all using, uh, you know, uh, the correct uh, accounting, generally uh, accepted accounting principles so that we're talking apples with apples and not apples with oranges. Uh, And you can use this EBITDA calculation whether you have one practice or a 1,000 practices. It's just another approach to come up with a value. Uh, typically, uh, most practices will look at real estate, accounts receivable, uh, hard tangible assets such as equipment and supplies, but obviously the big nut is uh, goodwill. Yeah. And uh, my personal opinion is goodwill is generally between 35 and 65% of the average of the last three uh, years of revenue. And uh, the reason for the range is if Dr. Smith is going to take his money and leave within six months, I want to pay, obviously, less for goodwill. And if Dr. Smith is willing to stay on to assure a transfer of staff and patients, I'm willing to pay a little bit more for goodwill. Right, right. So for those out there listening, it's a huge decision, but the data is quite clear. Dental service organizations, managed service organizations, in my personal opinion, are here to stay. You have to learn how to compete against them, work with them, or fight against them. Those are individual decisions, and uh, each individual will determine what's right or wrong, but I don't believe they're going to go away. If anything, I see them expanding, and the data supports that at this point in time. Yeah, It would be like you opening up a hardware store next to Lowe's and Home Depot. Uh That's not to say you won't be successful. It's not to say you can't do a great job, but it's very difficult. They have enormous amounts of buying power. They have enormous amounts of experts on their team for accountants, uh, 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 attorneys. Uh, Their marketing uh, ability uh, 
they have a, a really an enormous supply of money and expertise, and it's difficult for solo practitioners like myself to compete. Uh, and 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 I think as a profession, these are things that we're going to have to review, uh, discuss, and understand. Uh, but uh, it's not going away, in my personal opinion. Yeah, I tend to agree with you. I mean, I'm looking at the the writing uh, on the wall now, uh, looking where we've come from in the last 20 plus years. Um, you know, I, 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 that's why I'm in the position I'm in. I mean, I, I really think that um, it is a permanent change. Um, you know, if you had to advise a solo practicing dentist um, on how to um, expand their hours, uh, in for, you know, this is something that I see very clearly um, because, I mean, it's what we do. But how would you recommend a solo practice dentist uh, expand their hours in order to capture some of those patients that they're losing right now? Well, I'll tell you, like most great ideas, mine come by complete mistake. I was of the uh, opinion that if I offered you an enormous amount of money, I could get what I wanted. And this is obviously a generalization. And from my particular area here in Massachusetts, what I began to find out is most young professionals were married or partnering with other young professionals. So they had two incomes coming in. And what it appeared through exit interviews and the interview process was they were more interested in a quality of life rather than a quantity of life. I was at age 58, I think, of the generation where more meant better. And I think some of our younger professionals look at me and laugh and say, why would I want to put in 14 or 15-hour days? What's in it for me? So the point of my story here as I digress is that I started to offer what I would call half-time. You work from 7.30 to 1.30, or you work from 1.30 to 8 p.m., or you just work weekends and have the week off, or in some cases people will work three days from 7.30 until 8 and then have the rest of the week off. And once I started creating that atmosphere, not just for the team members, but for the associate doctors, it seemed like there was a greater interest. I always looked that people would be like me. They want to grow their business, make a lot of money, uh, just keep growing and getting bigger and bigger. But, again, this is a generalization. My personal uh, understanding over the last 10 years is there seems to be a sway away from that and saying, why would I want to do that? I want to spend time with my partner. I want to spend time with my children. I want to do other hobbies, other areas of interest. And this flexible time has allowed my business to grow. It has allowed me to improve the quality of my team members because I now attract more team members. And it's also allowed me to be more flexible with the associates who are part of my organization. And uh, that flex time has worked very well. And quite honestly, when you work five and a half to six hours straight with no breaks, sometimes you're much more productive 
much more effective and efficient than when you do eight or nine hours and you're taking an hour and a half lunch, you're taking a little break in the morning, a little break in the afternoon, you lose a lot of time. So uh, that particular strategy has worked well for me and my organization and uh, perhaps uh, may help some of the listeners. And what that does is it allows you to test the market. And my suggestion is training, training, training with your receptionist and front desk. Uh, this may sound cold and insensitive, but if you're unemployed, okay, and retired, there's absolutely no reason to give those appointments at 8 o'clock at night or on a weekend. So I try to profile and categorize the patients based on the procedures and based on the type of patient. So, for example, somebody like myself, a busy man or a busy woman, typically a 7.30 appointment a lunchtime appointment or a later appointment from 6 p.m. to 8 p.m. is much more advantageous based on their uh, their workload. Mm-hmm. Uh, also, uh, you know, you got children in private school or kids in school. How many mom and dads want to take their kids out of school for a five-minute orthodontic uh, visit or uh, a simple, uh, straightforward hygiene appointment? It's costly for you to take the the children out of uh, school, and these hours uh, offer something that the competition doesn't. And if you're going to compete with the big box stores, uh, sometimes uh, one of the best ways is to be available. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I really actually, um, that's the strategy that we're, we're adapting in my office right now is two doctors every day. There are six operatories, so there's plenty of room, plenty of room to, to run, you know, two hygiene chairs, Two doctors uh, or two ops, one for each doc uh, or two for each doc rather, and then uh, we're also looking at um, uh, the scenario of having split shifts. So you know, one starts at 7:30, one starts at 1:30, um, and to me that just makes a lot of sense because you not only can you expand your hours, you're shortening your hours for your team, you're shortening your hours for your doctors. They they do have an opportunity for more life, so it isn't just you know. Um, it, it isn't just drill, fill, and bill eight hours, nine hours a day, you know, four or five days a week. So it gives them an opportunity to work a, a, a better schedule, a more life-friendly schedule. Um, what are you doing right now to recruit new dentists? Because uh, I'm sure, I mean, you're growing. You're always looking to recruit that next new dentist. So what are you doing? Well, I, I will tell you, for me, this is not actually practical, but uh, by teaching at the Dental University, in my case, Tufts University School of Dental Medicine in downtown Boston, it, it allows me to interact with the junior and senior and resident students. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's almost like a working interview. That has been helpful but may not be practical to the audience. I do use a company uh, called Patterson, and basically what they are is a headhunter group. Mm-hmm. Uh, typically, what I've done is I've given them the profile that suits my needs, and that profile can be different for the listeners. Some may want a female dentist, some may want a male. Some may want someone with one- or two-year residency. Some may want someone directly out of school. Someone may want someone who's been practicing for five years or greater. There right. are advantages and disadvantages to each of those categories of dentists, but basically for the new grad there's a finder's fee of roughly $10,000, uh, and their rates go from ten to $18,500, and typically they'll allow you to pay that 
over a period of three to six months. If the uh, an option for some of your listeners are to consider the headhunting firms out there, uh, National Dental Practitioners, uh, Patterson are two that come to mind. And basically there's no cost unless you actually hire the individual. To me what's important is it's very much like the dating services that are out there. You put in the information that you want, and they come up with candidates that match your listeners' wants and needs. Then you get a CV to review it. Then you can do a phone interview. And then after those two uh, areas have been uh, reviewed, you can do a a working uh, interview. And eventually, if you find that it's successful, I personally put into our employment contracts that if the dentist does not work out for whatever reason for the first year, then I ask that dentist to split that finder's fee with me. So I pay 100% of it, but if for whatever reason, and I've learned this over 33 years of doing this, it doesn't work, then I want them to be responsible for 50% of that finder's fee. Sure, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, that makes sense. Wow. Well, this has been um, a spectacular, spectacular interview. Um, I, we could probably go on for another couple hours, but um, uh, I know your time is is up and as is mine. Um, before we go and before we wrap up, wrap this up. Um, best way for folks to get a hold of you, uh, Dr. Coughlin, uh, if they'd uh, like to reach for, out and learn more about what you're doing. For teaching. For education, development, knowledge, for podcasts, for PowerPoint presentations, for speaking engagements, for training, I suggest you go to www.ascent-dental-solutions. My podcast can be found on uh, iTunes or Stitcher. You just type in the name Dr. Kevin Coughlin or Ascent dental solution uh and uh um my personal email uh if people have questions is kcbmd the number five at yahoo.com that's k for kevin c for coughlin d for doctor m for medicine d for doctor the number five at yahoo.com i'm pretty good about answering uh all emails if uh, the audience has particular questions. And, Jerry, I'm flattered that you uh, allowed me to speak to your group. You're doing a great job. And uh, next time we talk, I'm sure you're going to be outpacing me and outgrowing me. Well, I don't know about that, but I'm going to sure give it my best shot, and I'm going to be, um, I'm going to be learning from you all the way. I, I really appreciate it. I recommend all of our, our listeners grab a copy of every one of your books. They're all available on Amazon. Uh, dot com um, and the three books uh, the one I just finished just enough to be great there are two there are two others your tooth is killing me and then the the last one is a brand new book that you've just released business processes and procedures um, and the title is long unfortunately I didn't write the whole title down but uh, that's part of it but I'd recommend everybody go and grab those three books really no brainer um, and the books are phenomenal and you're going to learn a ton from an expert so. Dr. Coughlin, I appreciate your time, sir. And uh, once again, uh, Dr. Coughlin, thank you, sir. And we will be in touch because I have a feeling we'll be doing this again very soon. So thank you again, sir. I really appreciate your time. Thank you very much, and thanks for the listen. Appreciate it. Thanks, Kevin. Bye now.
Bye-bye. Hey, Jerry Jones here. Thank you for joining me on this edition of the Jerry Jones Radio Show. You've reached the end of this segment. You can always listen in to the next show by visiting jerryjonesdirect.com forward slash podcast. You can subscribe on iTunes or Stitcher or find the show at blogtalkradio.com forward slash Jerry Jones. For more information about Jerry Jones Direct, go to jerryjonesdirect.com or give us a call, 503-339-6000. Our member ambassadors are standing by to assist you. And once again, thank you for listening to The Jerry Jones Radio Show.